Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Nadelstein. I'm joined today by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. Keith, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Ben. All right, so Keith, we just dropped our Gold Outlook Report for 2023. I want to jump right in with some questions for you, starting with how we did on our Gold Outlook Report in 2022. Let's discuss your price calls and your guess on the macroeconomic environment. How do you think we did? So a year ago, 2022, I think I said something like, this is the toughest call ever because we have a falling interest rate trend, but now the Fed says they're going to try to um, reverse the laws of physics and fight the tide. So if they back away from, or this is what I think I said about a year ago, if they back away from this madness, then we're going to go down one path likely higher prices of the metals. And if um, they persist in trying to go down this path, then um, that isn't necessarily bullish uh, for uh, the metals. And um, what happened at the end of the year is that the gold price was virtually unchanged, which is very interesting. Of course, the the Fed did go down the path of uh, hiking rates quite a lot. Um, And um, you know, we ended up with a price of gold that, you know, went up and down and then, you know, sort of back up and there was, uh, you know, neutral at the end of the year. And you talk about that a little bit in the report, how there was this kind of big shift, a tectonic level shift in the macroeconomic environment. And yet gold kind of held in there, if you want to think about it in that way, and what that actually means for people looking in 2023. So why don't we actually talk about your interest rate call? Did that surprise you at all that rates went up and continue to go up to as if we're speaking right now? Well, it's very it's very difficult, if not impossible, to try to predict what a politician is going to do. Because they, they feel that they're, at least in the short term, unconstrained by any factors. In reality, you're getting into somebody's head, and sometimes it can be all sorts of considerations. You know, let's do this because it's going to hurt the other party, you know, and that kind of political calculus that, you know, as, as an economist who is who's trying to study this as science, I don't know how you factor those things in. And I'm sure there's a lot of lobbying by powerful interest groups on both sides, both for higher interest rates and for lower interest rates. So you can't really predict that. Um, you can say that the drivers for falling interest rates are still in full force and effect. And so it's interesting that um, on the short end of the curve, the Fed absolutely controls it. They control the Fed funds rate, um, and all overnight rates are obviously going to be highly uh, controlled by that. Uh, But the farther out on the yield curve you get, the less control the Fed has. There's an expression that comes up every once in a while, and that is pushing on a string. The Fed is trying to make the entire yield curve go up, and then they push and actually, if you take a look at a picture of the yield curve, it kind of looks like that. That on the very short end, you know, the yield curve is very high. But once you get past a year, you know, it's falling like the string is almost looping up, but it won't it won't keep pushing, um, you know, as it goes. And um, what they ended up with was quite an epic. I don't know if it's an all time record. I haven't rummaged through enough data to determine that, but I, I suspect it probably is just an epic inversion where to the point where you even have an inversion between the 10-year bond and the Fed funds rate. Not not just between the 10-year and the two-year, the 10-year and the three-month, but the 10-year and the Fed funds rate. And that is just causing huge amounts of pain, as, as one can imagine, if a spread like that inverts. You know, the only thing that's surprising, it's sort of surprising, but sort of isn't, that the Fed persists in the face of that. Um, and again, but it gets down to you know, the whole point of of politicizing what should be an economic decision, the whole point of socializing credit in in the hands of a state bank, communist manifesto number five, which is what the Fed is, the whole point of that is to um, act outside of all economic constraint, which means act uh, outside of all reason. And so this is forced supplanting reason. They're doing something unreasonable by definition 
And, um, you know, how much more are they going to persist at it? Well, um, look at the political uh, forces align, and that'll tell you, um, you know, what, what the Fed likely, but not certainly, but, you know, what they may, what they may try to do next. Well, I have a point or kind of a question that I think feeds off of that. So we talked a lot about inflation in the last year. A lot of people said, hey, you know, they printed so much money last year and look at all this, the inflation that this has led to. And we've kind of analyzed all these non-monetary forces, which have been pushing prices up and increasing the CPI. There's been a lockdown whiplash, green energy restrictions, trade wars, the actual war in Ukraine, lots of other non-monetary forces that have been pushing up prices. Do you think that what most people are calling inflation is going to calm down in 2023? Or will the destructive power of these kind of Fed rate hikes, which you've also written about, undo any of those price decreases from restrictions easing or this kind of whiplash relaxing? Do you think that there's a kind of balancing out of those destructive forces? <laughs> Man, that's a tough calculation to make. Um, I think the first thing that um, people should really have, have firmly in their mind when talking about inflation it's like we're using one word to encompass two total different things. Imagine if there was a word that meant bad studenting. And into that bucket, we threw both, you know, kids that were just cutting class and doing drugs and not studying. And at the same time, we also lumped in the kids that just weren't that smart and that were really trying and really struggling and the materials to advance for them. And we threw them into one bucket. And we're now trying to generalize about what's happening to both of those groups um, as they graduate from you know, fifth grade to sixth grade. And um, of course, th those groups aren't going to behave the same. So we have the non-monetary forces, um, you know, what I call useless ingredients that regulators keep forcing companies to put more and more stuff in that people don't value or even know about, which drives the cost up. Um, and that's been an ongoing trend for many, many, many decades. Um, and I don't think that's the marginal change that's occurring, you know, let's say post-COVID. Then you have green energy restrictions. And boy, if those really slammed the, the poor folks in, uh, in Europe, um, you know, really, really hard. Because it isn't just a price of electricity bill. You know, I know somebody on Twitter who runs a small pub in the UK, and he was talking about his um, you know, utility bill, including natural gas, that used to run... I don't know, six or seven hundred pounds sterling a month previously, and then it's like twelve thousand a month, you know, after they caused the price of natural gas to skyrocket with all these insane um, you know, restrictions. So it's it's the price of everything that depends on energy, which is pretty much the price of everything. Name a product, name a good or service that doesn't depend on energy. And um, you know, it's it's pretty tough. So you have that going on, although that's relaxing a little bit. Because among other things, shipmakers have been, you know, building and putting into the water more and more. You know, it, it takes a specialized ship that can carry natural gas. Um, there are a lot of constraints in shipping natural gas from where it's plentiful, i.e., in the U.S., where it's making new lows um, in price, to markets where it's desperately needed. You need terminals that can um, compress it from a gas to a liquid. And then you need ships that can carry that. And this is all very um, hazardous stuff. You're taking an explosive gas, compressing it into an explosive liquid at very high pressure. Uh, when you compress something, if people haven't studied the physics, the act of compressing it makes it very, very hot. You're taking something that's under very high pressure and very explosive, and then you're making it very, very hot. So um, I, I believe it's a multi-billion dollar price tag to build a natural gas terminal you can only imagine the not-in-my-backyard lobbying that would affect your ability to get a permit and build one of those things. But they're starting to be, uh, if not new terminals, at least um, increasing capacity and uh, new ships in the water. So they're starting to alleviate some of that. Um, of course, the other surprise a year ago that was not on my radar screen, or people say that wasn't on my 2022 bingo card, was um, uh, war in Ukraine. And that took a lot of commodity production um, and uh, obviously Russian oil and Russian natural, not Russian natural gas out of Western markets. 
Uh, again, a completely non-monetary force, but that had a huge impact on the price of energy in Europe. Um, then finally, you have the wild card of trade war, and it isn't just tariffs, although you know governments at random just say we think, you know, thumbs their book. There should be a 175% tariff on whiskey imported from Scotland. Um, and then, you know, the justification as well, those Chinese communists are, you know, flooding us with cheap steel or whatever, which is somehow benefiting us, but somehow hurting us. And then there ends up being a tariff on, on uh, whiskey import, imported from Scotland. Because, you know, once the, um, uh, you know, once the, the grab bag is open, all the lobbyists show up and they want to shove all their various favored things in there. I guess if you're an American maker of whiskey, you might like scotch to be more expensive so that it's easier to sell American whiskey, which is cheaper. Um, so all that stuff is just driving up prices all over the place. There is a continued trend, and I think this is a global mega trend of nationalism, um, trade war, um, reshoring or onshoring where you know, companies that have moved things offshore, either because the infrastructure simply didn't exist on, onshore, there are not millions of workers that are happy to turn little tiny screws in iPhones in America. That's not the kind of work Americans want. That workforce isn't here, but it's in China. So that went to China. Now you say, okay, you have to reshore everything, Apple. What is that gonna do the cost of manufacturing an iPhone? Nothing good. And I think the trend continues to be to reshore and onshore um, and people think they're going to get jobs out of it. What they're going to find is that at the price tag that the company might have to charge to produce that product, you know, using American labor in America, that the market isn't necessarily there for it anymore. Um, and then, of course, people will call that inflation. Again, lumping the, the drug addicted kid with the kid who's struggling, lump them all together, call that inflation. Um, now, in, the, in terms of monetary, I've been saying um, for many, many, many years, if your only concern in looking at this corrupted, rotting, collapsing, um, failing monetary system, and you look at all the various ways that that harms people, and there's quite a number of them, and you say, we don't care about any of the ways in which this is causing people to be hurt, except one. And that one way is that consumer price is surprising. If that was your only concern about our monetary system, then you should want falling interest rates because every downtick in the interest rate is an increase in the subsidy to producers to borrow more, to put more capacity into greater production. Every hamburger restaurant in the country is constantly building a business case for its next marginal store, the town where they don't have a location yet. And then that, by definition, the marginal store is the one where the business case is failing. The very bottom line on that uh, business case is red. And then you lower the interest rate. So then the, you update the spreadsheet with a new lower interest rate, which means the interest expense goes down. Um, and it may even justify, instead of thinking of hiring 30 people for that restaurant, you hire 25, and then five were replaced by capital equipment, which is financed, obviously, by borrowing and then you rejigger the spreadsheet with a new lower interest rate, a little substitution of capital for labor, and suddenly the bottom line turns from uh, you know red to, to green. Um, and then you know you build that marginal store. What does that do to the price of hamburgers if you're increasing hamburger production capacity? And the same thing is happening all across the economy. It's not just the restaurant serving the hamburgers; it's the manufacturing company that produces the grill equipment and the fryers and the you know, walk-in freezers in that restaurant. It's the company manufacturing the glass for the windows in the storefront. It's the company manufacturing those awful tiles they have on the floor that are like fake wood. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's everything across the board is getting that subsidy. So now the Fed has said, because they're in the uh, belief and the quantity theory of money, that it's the quantity of dollars that cause prices to rise not aware of the idea of useless ingredients, green energy restrictions, trade war and tariffs, um, onshoring. They do talk about Ukraine, but in a way that's very not credible. And I think anybody who hears the Fed talking about Ukraine as a factor in rising prices immediately laughs at them as a bunch of liars and fools. And, and, not, and not wrongfully, I mean, because they're politicians and they 
they cast about to try to find whatever they can seize on to offer as an excuse. And it's very disingenuous and everybody can sense that, I think. Um, so the Fed not really aware of these non-monetary factors, not aware that their entire theory is wrong, says let's hike interest rates with the intention of reducing the quantity of uh, dollars in the, in the system, which they call the money supply, confusing the stocks with the flows. The supply is the flows. A supply would be new stuff being created coming in and you know, versus the total extent quantity that's out there. So yeah, let's hike interest rates. And they've done quite a lot of it. Now, what people are not thinking about is if you're a producer, you have to earn a positive spread. If your return on capital is less than your cost of capital, it is inevitable, it is necessary, it is a forcing function that if you can't get the cost of capital down, which obviously as a business, you have no control over that, you have to get out of that deal. You have to shut down that production ultimately um, and um, you know sell everything off and delever because at that higher cost of capital, if you're getting a 2% return on capital and the cost of capital is now 6%, you're losing 4% on every borrowed dollar. You've got to get out of that. That is going to kill you. Um, so a lot of productive capacity is going to be destroyed at the margin. Now, what, what the other thing, so the Fed sort of understands, because um, Milton Friedman said it, is that in monetary policy, when you make a change, that there can be leads and lags. I never really agreed with the idea of leads, but anyways, um, I guess I guess he's saying that sometimes the market will attempt to uh, front run what the Fed is doing. Not really sure hamburger restaurants are, are in the business of doing that, but um, anyway, they they hike interest rates. There's a lag. Now, why is there a lag? Well, one thing is that they've seen this game before. If you look at the um, you know the, the rock rolling downhill from 1981 to present. As the interest rates come down, there have been all sorts of zigs and zags along the way. And anybody who prematurely liquidated all their uh, capital assets, shut everything down to try to return their borrowed money, you know, found in the next Fed meeting or the next year that that um, that was a foolish mistake and they just handed the market to their competitors. So the, the smart thing to do is to ride it out. The same thing with layoffs. How many times have companies laid off in, in a time of, of slight monetary tightening. Um, and then only a few months later, they look really foolish. And then they're trying to offer big bonuses to get the people back that they just laid off, you know, three to six months ago. So companies try to smooth these things out. They try to ride it out. But ultimately, if the interest rate is truly going to be, uh, and the Fed is, is, is saying still more, so let's call it 5% overnight, um, you know, risk-free, what does that put the two or three or five year corporate bond at? Seven, eight, nine percent. If that is going to be the cost of capital, man, there's an awful lot of productive capacity that is submarginal. Now, uh, in October, we had zombie month for this for this very podcast right here in River City. And um, zombie is a company who produces less profit than its interest expense. You know, something like 20% of all the corporate debt extant. Uh, prior to all the statistics that we have about zombies uh, are, are, are lagging in you know, statistics, prior to any of these rate hikes, back when you know rates were effectively zero, something like 20% of all the corporate debt was zombie. Now you, know, you go from zero to let's call it 5% um, on the Fed funds rate, which means the corporate bond rate, you know, add two or three or, or more percentage points to that, how many more companies that hadn't been zombie at zero rates are suddenly now zombie you know, in this environment? And it's a less forgiving environment. So zombies require both cheap credit and also forgiving lenders. Lenders that say, well, yeah, we know that you're not really a going concern. We realize that there's no way you can ever hope to, to you know, you're in a hole and you're digging deeper and we're happy to lend you more shovels and take the risk that if you get too deep, and you know we're going to lose our shovels. We're happy to do that. Well, this environment is a lot less, um, shall we say, uh, conducive to that, um, you know, type of thinking on the part of, uh, of 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 lenders. How many of these businesses are going to be forced to close 
and their productive capacity going off the market. So the Fed is sitting here thinking that it's going to reduce prices by reducing the demand side of the equation, but it's not understanding that actually uh, Say's law says your supply is your demand, and that what the Fed is doing is destroying supply, and it's destroying supply in a concentrated way. You put a hamburger restaurant out of business, there's a, a you know a lower supply of, of hamburgers. And yes, the people who work in that restaurant have a demand for hamburgers, but you know, most of the 10,000 people that go to that restaurant in a month aren't the workers in the restaurant. So you've you've affected supply and therefore uh, the price has to go up. But if you think of it as a um, an arbitrage between the rate of return on capital and the rate of the market rate of interest, you know, all the supply and demand stuff really is only kind of a, a simplistic way of trying to look at it. Just look at it and say the rate of return on capital has to be greater than the um, the cost of that capital, and with some lag, it will eventually get there. So if the Fed were to somehow persist in this indefinitely, then um, you know that would happen. Of course, that's the real question: is will the forces of of reality come back and get their revenge against the Fed and force them to reverse? And that's the that's the question for 2023. So let, let's see if someone who is uh, one of those inflation bad students, uh, if, if they can kind of summarize what you said, because there's a lot of really interesting points. First is that there are non-monetary forces that push up prices. This has nothing to do with money printing or kind of inflation or credit. They're, they're completely separate. The first is there are non-monetary factors pushing up prices, which we see in inflation or CPI statistics. The second is that the Fed, when they lower interest rates, most people think, oh, wow, uh, you know, this, this is going to lead to uh, inflation and all these other things. But you've noted an important point, which is that a lower interest rate is a subsidy to producers because producers rely heavily on the interest rate in factoring in whether to produce more stuff. And if they do produce more stuff with a lower interest rate, then that means lower prices, more stuff, lower prices. And the higher rates that the Fed believes will reduce inflation actually harm producers because producers rely on that very same interest rate. The higher it is, the higher the hurdle they have to get to. And zombie companies, which were already like on this very tight margin of uh, bankruptcy, are way out of uh, line with this higher interest rate. They were barely surviving on 0% interest rates. And so this kind of lag in monetary policy might show up in higher prices because of higher interest rates, which is the exact opposite of what everyone from the mainstream economists to pundits to even the Fed believes, which is that higher rates means lower inflation. Is that kind of right? Did I, did I pass the class key? That's the perversity of it is that the Fed, the Fed's apologists, the Fed's court economists, the Fed's dirigists and, and technocrats, and all the way to the Fed's most strident critics. Everybody agrees, quantity theory of money, high rates to curb inflation. And um, didn't we do a, a, a put out a cartoon sometime last year? Um, and it shows Jay Powell with a gasoline truck and, and um, the economy's on fire labeled inflation and he's spraying gasoline on it. And there's a reporter asking him, uh, do you think that'll be enough to, uh, you know, to deal with the fire? And they have the the causality backwards. Spraying gasoline isn't going to put the fire out. It's going to make it worse. And um, that's uh, that's the, the exquisite perversity of um, you know where we are at this moment in time. I'm going to be asking you kind of in, in a minute or two some lightning round questions, which get to this and to some other things, but. First, I want to ask about those very central banks. So clearly they have no clue when it comes to macroeconomic policy. Um, and there's this kind of fallacy that I see a, a lot on the internet and kind of in gold circles, which is that central banks are geniuses. Also, they're idiots, uh, but they're geniuses when they buy gold because everyone knows gold is money, except that the central banks don't know gold is money. So it's, it's this weird like dichotomy. Anyways, central banks have been buying gold like it is nobody's business, Keith. It's like me and you, they've been buying gold like crazy, specifically you know, in this past couple of months, it's been the Bank of China. The Bank of China has been buying lots and lots and lots of gold. So I wanna ask you, we're kind of making fun of the central banks in this one area and then you know, touting them as experts in another. 
Does this matter at all to the price of gold in 2023? The fact that China, the Bank of China is buying gold, or is this not? Well, my, my, my first thought is to respond to, you know, the sentiment that likes to accuse central banks of being morons and then looks to them as genius when they're buying gold. And I think that's word for that's confirmation bias. If, you, if you're watching this and you find yourself doing that, use that as an opportunity to check your premises. Do I really think they're genius or am I happy they're buying because I see, um, you know, that, that seems likely to make the price of gold go up. And if it's the latter, um, you know, don't, don't ascribe to the central banks a genius that you otherwise don't, you know, don't believe that they have. And they're, and they're not geniuses, they're politicians. I don't think they're stupid. I don't think they're incompetent. I've met a number of central bankers. They certainly strike me as intelligent folks. You gotta be pretty smart to get a PhD in economics. Even even though a lot of it is how do you what's the differential equation that describes the rate of change of angels dancing on the head of a pin while the pin is and and you know falling in free fall you know in a vacuum towards a black hole you know it's a complicated equation right to calculate the number of angels that would be dancing on the head of the pin and the rate at which that number is changing um, but. Um, they're politicians, and they're and they're and they're driven by political forces, and of course they're driven by bad theory. So, yeah, you have gold buying, and you know something I talk about a lot is what I call the famous buyer fallacy, the idea that you know we can point to somebody who's buying because they're famous and say, well, that's going to drive the price up because it's buying. Um, there's two things that are worth observing about that. One, there's ten thousand not famous sellers, are they automatically deemed to be wrong and the buyers deemed to be right because they're not famous and the buyer is? Well, maybe, but not always. Right. Why um, not have a, a quantity theory of sellers, right? Like, hey, look, there's more sellers than only one buyer, therefore uh, the sellers must right. be correct, right? And each, each seller is selling a few ounces and the one buyer is buying, you know, half a ton or whatever. Um, and then the, the second problem with that is it does not take into account it doesn't look at the bid and the offer. Was it motivated sellers that were dumping it and they found a bid? Or was that famous buyer a motivated buyer and went and lifted everybody's offer? So, um, you know, which side was it? Was it somebody who said, I've got to sell my gold. I've got to get out of this terrible, horrible, awful asset that's just killing me. It's just, it's just an albatross around my neck. The gold is so heavy. I just have to dump it at any price. Is it a price insensitive seller or is it a price insensitive buyer? I have to dump these dollars before they go to zero. I've got to buy the gold. And um, the fact that famous buyer A bought it doesn't tell you that. It's not even looking at that. It's just saying that in that class, which is composed of kids that are on drugs and not, and not studying, plus kids that are slower and not really, they're really trying hard and they're really struggling with material. It's just saying that, um, some kid, some kid in that class who's you know at random got a, a C minus grade on a particular test. Okay, well, what's the what's the fix for that? Well, we don't know because we don't know which kid and we don't know which questions he got wrong. I mean, there's so much we don't know. We're not even bothering to look at. We're just looking at a statistic and said, oh, this bank bought. Okay, well, that bank bought. That's nice. Um, the other thing is that always has to be said. There's a vast amount of gold that's out there. Virtually all the gold ever mined in five, at least 5,000 years of human history is still in somebody's hands. And when one tiny, tiny, tiny little speck in a tiny, tiny corner of that market moves across to a different corner of the market, that is not a predictor of price in the same way that if a grain of dust in the, in the air you know, blows around the globe through the you know, west to east you know, winds that normally blow at northern latitudes, and that dust that used to be over the air in LA is now over the air in in London. What does that tell you about the weather? What the price? What the what the temperature in London is going to be in June? It tells you nothing. Maybe the temperature in London is going to be hot. Maybe it's going to be cold. And that grain of dust provides no information content to help you uh, predict that. I want to let our audience know two things. One is we're going to be putting out this great white paper called How Not to Think About Gold. And it goes through all of these great fallacies 
Uh, we give examples. We explain, hey, you know, this is why this really doesn't affect the price of gold at all. So if you like this, we're going to have a full white paper for you. So make sure to sign up, subscribe, and we'll send that out to you for free. The second thing is that if you want to take my role, we'll be doing a webinar with Keith. So you can ask all those questions you want. Hey, does you know the price of gold change because of this or that or any other question you can think of? And that webinar is going to be on March 6th. So make sure to subscribe to the channel and we'll remind you and let you know, hey, it's time to ask Keith those questions. So Keith, I got another one for you. A little bit of a spin ball here. So central banks often buy gold, and we just discussed why maybe that has no effect on the price whatsoever. What about silver? I never hear central banks buying silver. Why are silver and gold different animals? Um, and what do you think about in 2023, the kind of ratio of gold to silver? Is that important? Well, what are the two different metals going to look like in 2023? So historically, the metals served a different function for different groups of people. And I, I think this is highly underappreciated. Um, but if you look back at it, and, and, and the reason why people tend to assume that you know, the metals are the same, obviously silver is less expensive and people sort of understand that. So people sort of look at it and say, well, silver is for smaller transactions or poorer people, which is true, but it's oversimplifying it. Of course, both metals are heavy although gold is about twice as heavy as silver for the same amount of volume. Um, gold is uh, doesn't tarnish and silver does. Gold has a color, silver is the white metal, uh, obviously. But for the most part, they're pretty similar. They're both reflective, they're both good conductors of heat and electricity. Uh, they're both malleable. Um, you know, there's a lot more similarities and differences, so it's, it's easy to assume, well, they're both, you know, essentially the same, but, what markets do when given enough time is they tend, they tend to select one winner to take all. You don't have two monies. You know, if you look at, we're talking over the internet, you know, uh, you're in one place, I'm in another, and we're sending packets across a wire. That the, that the electrical characteristics of that wire, the um, network characteristics of the network, the size and formatting of those packets, are all defined by certain protocols that we call TCPIP. Uh, TCPIP was the singular. There was one standard that won, and there was, there'd been a number of standards, um, you know, back early in my, in my career, when uh, Banyan Vines, Novell Netware, IBM had something called Net NetBuoy. There were all different, and I think there are others um, that were competing to be the networking standard that would drive the world. It was clear that the world was going to move to computer networking, but nobody knew which one was going to win. Eventually, TCPIP, and then all the other ours are displaced and go away. Historically, we know that cattle were used as money, wheat, salt, all kinds of things were used as money, but you know, gold and silver survived and everything else didn't. So people just kind of, I don't think they really think about, well, why two, why two monetary metals? And the answer is that, and I'll never forget, I, I studied under uh, Professor Fekete, um, who said that silver is the most marketable in the small, meaning it's been asked spread through the tightest for small amounts of value. Like what a wage earner, 10% of a wage earner's weekly wage, if you're in that level of, you know, let's call it $50 kind of, kind of size, the bid ask spread on silver is tighter than the bid ask spread on gold. Uh, especially historically, technology today has brought it a lot closer. Um, and so uh, the, the silver becomes the best way to carry value over time. I'm working now, I take 10% of my wage, put it in silver, hoard the silver, and then later, um, you know, disorder hoard it in, in my retirement, disorder hoard it to buy groceries and pay my living expenses. Um, gold was always the best thing at carrying value over distance. You think about the needs of, of commerce, especially commerce over long distance. So cattle were great because cattle move under their own power. I mean, they're not that fast, but cattle walk. Anything else, you know, especially if it was heavy and bulky, has to be carried or pulled or whatever by horses or oxes. Um, and so gold is so value dense that it was just really great. You know, you could put, uh, you know, if this were solid gold, this this phone, if this was made of solid gold, would probably be a kilo. That's enough to buy a pretty nice luxury car. 
and you can put that in your pocket and walk down the street with it. So gold can go anywhere in the world today by jet. Um, almost anywhere in the world is within less than 24 hours uh, settlement by uh, you know armored car and an airplane. Um, and so um, you know gold gold is the best for carrying value over distance. Obviously, gold has a much higher uh, specific value, which is value per you know either cubic centimeter or or value per uh, gram. And so uh, gold's obviously used for bigger transactions. But to think of this another way, if if wage earners want to save, especially on a weekly basis, so and, and they want it physically in their hand, um, silver is the most effective way of doing that with the least losses incurred. Um, gold being so much more expensive, especially if you're buying multiple ounces of the stuff, it really is an, as a capital asset. And so gold will trade against other capital assets. Gold is gonna be more subject to capital flows as one asset is being sold off and another asset is being bought. Um, silver is gonna be more subject to um, the fortunes of the wage earners. Now, it's not that big capital um, asset owners can't buy silver. They can and they do. And we've had plenty of those conversations with some of those folks, um, obviously offline. Nobody wants to necessarily go on the record of saying that. Um, not central banks, I don't think, generally touch silver. But a lot of other folks do. But silver tends to be more of a trade. Um, whereas for, for a lot of these folks, especially not in the U.S., the U.S. less so. But in the rest of the world, gold tends to be a forever, you know, uh, you know, not necessarily the biggest part of the portfolio, but gold, you know, whatever their gold position is, tends to be a forever position. If someone is, if someone is setting up a intergenerational trust to set aside wealth for their grandkids and great grandkids, and 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 going to some private bank in uh, in Zurich to to set this up, gold's going to be in that portfolio. Silver, probably not. Um, so that's the difference in drivers for how those two, you know, metals uh, can trade differently at times. That said, um, the price of silver is more correlated to the price of gold than uh, it is correlated to the price of gold heavily. It is not correlated particularly well to other commodities. Yeah, I find that so interesting that there is actually a big difference in gold and silver. They have all of these kind of traits and characteristics in common, but it's not just, hey, you know, silver is smaller gold or, you know, gold is big silver. Uh, they, they really do have meaningful differences in either the way that they're bought, why they're bought, how they're treated, some as assets, some as something else. And so that will obviously be affected by different conditions. So gold and silver will move differently. So one kind of final question before we get to this lightning round, what should investors who are in one of the metals or maybe both of the metals Think about in 2023. Does the gold to silver ratio matter? Um, and should I think of maybe going into one metal, diversifying? What do you think about that question? Well, if you're in silver, the gold-silver ratio absolutely matters. And again, it's that gold being the objective measure of value. Um, you know, if you're in silver and the gold-silver ratio is going up, that means it's more and more ounces of silver equivalent to one ounce of gold. You're losing value. Um, so you're probably not happy about that. If the gold-silver ratio is going down, you're gaining, and um, that's where uh, obviously you want to be. Um, I think one thing that people should be looking for in the silver community, one of the, um, you know, I guess I'll call it conspiracy, not even really conspiracy, I guess I'll just call it rumors, belief that goes out there, is it always, it always starts out, the price of silver has to go up because and then dot, 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 and there's all these arguments that people swap in for that blank. And one of the arguments is because there's a deficit between silver supply. Now, in this case, supply being used properly, unlike earlier, you know, money supply not being used properly, which is, you know, silver coming out of mines and recycling, they claim is less than the silver that is going out in the form of, you know, electrical you know, switches and solar panels and, and whatever, that there's a deficit. And I always say, you know, look, suppose that's true, and I don't study supply and demand numbers like that, because I don't, ultimately don't think that's a productive use of, of time. But if that were true, then what that means is silver is being demonetized. That all of the vast, what makes a monetary commodity or a monetary metal monetary is its vast stocks to flows. And you're saying this, 
the stocks are being eaten up and being put in landfills in the form of, you know, used up solar panels and every washing machine has little switches in it, you know, relays that have some silver on the contacts and so on. And that unlike gold, silver is cheap, too cheap to be worth recycling. So all that stuff is going out. If that were true, silver is being demonetized. The stocks are being consumed. It stocks the flows is collapsing, and that um, inevitably, you know, silver is going to be down to copper or uh, lithium or anything else that, you know, may or may not be expensive, but is, um, uh, you know, just just an industrial ingredient and nothing more. If that were the case, then silver you would expect silver to trade a lot more like copper. Um, you know, or or the battery metals or whatever than the monetary metal. So far, that's not the case. But um, yeah, you know, uh, that would be something to watch for: is silver being demonetized. Wow. I, yeah, I I think I find that so interesting because on one hand they're arguing for kind of this like monetary price, uh, you know, rumor or something to happen in terms of silver as the money. It's gonna maybe explode in price or you know, X Y Z. But on the other hand, if you actually look at the arguments they're making, they're really making an argument for the demonetization of silver and kind of silver becoming an industrial metal, which, you know, who knows if that will happen or if that's a good or a bad thing. But the argument itself kind of is pointing towards, you know, demonetization of silver. Right. And yet the you know, end result is they're hoping that silver as money increases in dollar price. It's just, it's just quantity theory thinking. It's attempting to say, well, if the quantity goes down, then, you know, the value of each unit is one over N, where N is the number of units. And so, therefore, the most valuable money is the one where there's only one unit. And um, I always joke and say, how many original Keith Wiener paintings are there? Well, they must be really valuable, right? Because the quantity is so low. You know, hint, I'm not a painter and I can't paint. Nobody would want, if I were to put paint on a canvas, nobody would want it. Because I don't have any skill at that, but you know the quantity theory would suggest, uh, you know, that the price should be very high because there's only one unit, let's say, and um, they're trying to apply that to silver and not understanding that, yeah, they're promoting demonetization as if that's going to increase the demand for silver. Maybe not. Right. Um, by the way, if you go into the comment section and write what painting you want Keith to do, uh, I'll see if I can get him to do it for the next podcast. Okay, Keith. I want to do a lightning round with you. So I'm going to give you just kind of rapid fire questions, some on the outlook report, some on macroeconomics, some just kind of fun ones. Give me just your quick thoughts, yes or no, up or down. And then I'll ask you your final question uh, for the podcast. Okay, let's go. Economic powerhouse Uganda has claimed that hmm. recent exploration has shown the country has unearthed 31 million tons of gold ore. By the way, I personally am biased. I'd love to get those 31 million tons working in a gold lease or a gold bond so they can start earning interest, but that's just my opinion. Uh, is this fact, the 31 million tons, if true, the death of gold, or is it a nothing burger for gold? What do you think? Nothing burger. Somebody posted uh, on one of my threads a link to this article allegedly validating this. Now, I'm, I'm of the belief that extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. And in reading this article, the way it was written, it was like written by somebody who clearly never been involved in mining before. Of that, It basically said of that 31 million tons, um, 310,000 of it was pure bullion or something like that. It's just the way it was written, it was like anybody who understood mining just wouldn't put those words, string those words together in that order, attempting to insinuate what they're trying to insinuate. So I, I think obviously, you know, a, a desperately poor, struggling African government is desperately poor and desperately struggling for reasons. And, um, you know, those reasons have to do with, first of all, basic competency, but also honesty. And I, I wouldn't necessarily take that uh, announcement, um, you know, seriously. Okay, so I hear gold's nothing burger for Uganda. Okay, next question. Soft landing or a recession in 2023? What do you think? <laughs> what, what the hell does soft landing mean? Does that mean we've only heard a few people? We're throwing people out the window and only a few of them are hitting the ground, so it's soft. If enough people you know, hit and die, then, then it's hard. 
you know, it, it's the old joke that a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose yours. Um, it's it's only a matter of how long does the Fed persist at this? How many zombies finally declare bankruptcy? How much damage does that do upstream? Um, I, I'm of the opinion that um, at the end of the day, which can, can take a while because of all the you know reasons why there are lags, um, some severe uh, stuff is coming down uh, at us. Okay, I'm, I'm definitely not putting you down a soft landing. Okay, next question. Powell, is he replaced or given a promotion in 2023? I, I, that's a political uh, question that I couldn't even begin to uh, uh, to try to opine on. And, and I don't really see the various central bankers as being fundamentally different from one another anyway. I don't, you know, it's not like I'm cheering for the so-called hawks because they're smarter than the so-called doves. They're all central planners. They're all vying for power. They all believe in communist manifesto plank number five, and they're just saying, I could do it better, and they can't. So whether whether it's him or whether they they yank Janet Yellen out of the treasury and put her back at the Fed, how does it make a difference to me? All right, so we will not be nominating you for the position. Uh, okay, next question. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, has the digital gold finally lost its shine, or will crypto critics eat their words? I have no opinion as to whether the price of Bitcoin skyrockets again or not. I, I suspect maybe not, but I don't know more about its near-term price trajectory than any of the Bitcoiners who have been proven not to have any the slightest idea where it's going. Um, I do think something's happened, and I think the sheen's off. Um, you know, can there be a few more gyrations of price? There could, um, but at the end of the day. The whole thing is going to collapse because it, it is self-consuming. The only money that anybody ever makes in, in those schemes is the money paid in by the next guy to buy into the scheme. And eventually, uh, you run out of next guys. I highly suggest everyone watch the debate, the Bitcoin debate that uh, Keith was in. He absolutely rocked it. All right, next question. Which gold group will be louder in 2023, the perma bulls or the perma bears? I guess if you watch mainstream TV, they'll probably have more bears on because that just tends to be the bias in those quarters. Um, so if you're watching this, CNBC or Bloomberg uh, or, or Fox Business uh, producers, I, I'm available. Um, but um, I think uh, in the alternative asset spheres, Fintwit, as it's called, and, and other places like that, I, the bulls tend to be a lot louder. Okay, uh, quick final lightning round question. Is this decades-long downtrend in interest rates finally broken? The, the ever bubble of everything has kind of messed everything up, and that decades-long downtrend, okay, that's a thing of the past, Keith. We're in a world of higher rates from here on in, or does that decades-long trend come back with a vengeance? What do you think? I think the same drivers that have been pushing interest rates down for 41 years um, are still, 42 years now, we just turned the year, um, are still in full force and effect. And that driver is when the return on capital is less than the market rate of interest. So now the Fed has pushed up the market rate of interest. What demand is there for borrowing? In order to have a rising interest rates trend, you need a dynamic where every time the interest rate ticks up, there are more people who want to borrow more. That is how it was from after World War II to 1981. Every uptick increased, increased demand for borrowing. That is just not the world we're in today. I think in this world, you know, you still see uh, car companies advertising 0% for 72 months. I note that, and, and I never, I've been writing about that particular thing for many years. I didn't notice used car companies doing it but a couple of weeks ago, I was looking for something. I noticed Carvana is offering 0%. I don't know if it was 72 months. It might have been slightly shorter, but a pretty long duration loan on used cars. And, you know, and, and there's an obvious reason for this, which is that the demand for cars would fall off a cliff if people had to pay the market interest rate unsubsidized to buy a car. Well, every borrower, every would-be borrower everywhere is in the same boat. There is not a demand for borrowing at 8%. Um, very, very, very few companies are in a position 
you know, and, and not not the ones that are producing mainstream things in mass quantities. So no, I think that I think the trend continues down. I think the Fed is going to be proven wrong, and um, it's a matter of time. And that's that's the hard landing debate. So I, there's another one of those things. How can you believe central banks are smart and dumb at the same time? How can you believe that um, we're going to have a hard landing, which I think most people in the gold and hard asset community believe, and at the same time believe that we're now in a durable rising interest rates trend that's going to last for a decade or more? That hard landing is going to be the thing that you're going to see the interest rate, you know, meteorically crash. It is, is going to go from wherever it is to zero and below zero in, in a heartbeat in that hard landing, as it did in 2008 um, and, you know, previous crises. How, how can you believe both of those at the same time? We're going to have a hard landing, and yet we're in a durable, long-lasting, rising rates environment. I ask for those people comments. Uh, we want to see what you think in the, in the comment section. Okay, final question for you, Keith. What are your price calls for gold and silver in 2023? Oh, very, very hard question to answer. And that's why I wrote out a long answer in the Outlook report, which I encourage everybody to read. Okay, that wraps up the podcast. Everyone, please check out the Gold Outlook Report. It'll be in the description. And reminder, we have a webinar with Keith. He'll answer all your questions on the report on March 6th. So we hope to see you then. And thanks again. Make sure to subscribe. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.